Hello and welcome to this sixth edition of the BLS Report. The BLS Report is a series of podcasts on issues of interest to the members of the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia and, we hope, the wider legal community. The series honours the legacy of our friend and mentor, the late Professor Bob Baxt AO, one of the founders and key drivers of the BLS. I'm John Keeves, a partner with Johnson, Winter and Slattery and a member of the executive of the Business Law Section. With me today is Professor Pamela Hanrahan from University of New South Wales Business School. Pamela is also a member of the executive of the BLS and a corporations and financial services lawyer and an active member of the BLS Corporations Committee. Welcome, Pamela. Thanks, John. Today's discussion is about ESG, environmental, social and governance factors and how they affect investment decisions and how ESG factors are becoming increasingly important in M&A and investment deals in Australia and overseas. Today we have one of Australia's leading corporate M&A lawyers, Rebecca Maslin-Stanage, a partner with Herbert Smith Freehills and global chair and senior partner of HSF and also a member of our corporations committee and a member of the BLS executive in her spare time. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. We also have Brad Lynch, a partner with Advent Partners, one of Australia's longest standing investment managers with seven funds and over 500 millions under management. Welcome, Brad. We're very pleased you could be here today. Great to be with you, John. ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance. Have we passed a bit of a tipping point in the last few years, possibly influenced by the impact of COVID, but possibly quite independent and just a realisation that sustainability and net zero by 2050 aren't just nice to haves. But what does this mean for M&A and investments? Some of our listeners would be familiar with the UN-supported principles of responsible investment that have been adopted by over 4,000 signatories around the world. But the numbers of organisations signing up went from around 100 per year in 2015 to over 900 in 2020. Uh, quite a a significant rise. Earlier this year in March, Alison Heron-Lee, the acting chair of the US securities regulator, the SEC, gave a major speech to the Centre for American Progress on the SEC's focus on climate change. And a couple of weeks ago, the AFR carried a headline, ESG is is a game changer for investors. So clearly ESG is part of the zeitgeist. Rebecca, let's start by setting the scene. When we talk about ESG, exactly what do we mean in the context of M&A and investment deals? Uh, John, you've already said E for environment, S for social and G for governance. And these are the things that are having, I guess, two quite different impacts on M&A activity. The first is, in the past, if there'd been maybe an employee underpayment issue on a target that someone's looking at, or if it's got a practice that isn't seen as ideal from a climate change perspective, That might not have been a front of mind consideration for a bit of just something they think they can mitigate, but now that's going to be seen as a much more serious issue. And the second is ESG factors are actually driving M&A activity, and that's because we're seeing investors shying away from some assets that they might see as having an unacceptable ESG profile. And so companies are looking at their portfolio, and if they've got one or two assets in there that are seen as having a more adverse ESG profile than the others, then that company's likely to want to actually sell those assets so that they've got greater uniformity of ESG profile. And they're not going to find that some investors won't invest in the company at all because they find some of the assets just don't meet what their criteria are in terms of ESG. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, Brad, how does that line up with your experience in the PE world? Yeah, I think, John, from our perspective, you know, 
ESG has always formed the basis of any screening for a potential opportunity. I think we explicitly call it ESG now, but non-financial kind of metrics and looking at the, at the business more um, broader has always been a part of a, a diligence process. For example, you know, anyone would look at um, a business's interactions with its customers and employees about understanding the, the opportunity or the profile of that particular business, its reputation, its ability to attract talent. I think historically, you know, ESG has been used a little bit more as a as a negative kind of lens to say, okay, screening process will, will actually cut out particular sectors. I think increasingly in, in an investing context, it's it's more about moving ESG to an opportunity. So is there an opportunity to improve the ESG credentials that are of a particular target and that can have, um, you know, material positive valuation kind of uh, implications if you can do that? Or even thematics and looking at businesses that have the benefit to be able to uh, create competitive advantage and grow because of these structural shifts around ESG. So I think ESG has been a part of the investment process. It's been called out uh, uh, explicitly now, but it's actually moving from a, a negative kind of screening process to, to a positive uh, screening process, which is great. Thanks, Brad. You mentioned then that it's always been a consideration for investors, but I'm curious as to whether, Rebecca, are you seeing greater pressure for positive ESG decisions coming from the institutional investor market? Do you think the institutions are driving this? Absolutely. That's one of the key factors. And of course, they're influenced by their own customer base. I tell my 18-year-old daughter it's all really attributable to her because when she was looking for a super fund, she asked for my help. And I'm like, oh, okay, what are you looking for? And I thought of myself at the same age looking for what, where am I going to get the best investment return? That was not top of her list. That was not actually on her list. She had one item on her list and it was, I want a sustainable, socially responsible super fund. And I guess if you think of that across the board, super funds looking to the next generation of people, and that really is the profile of younger generations, it's really important to them that they can meet the expectations of a more socially conscious world. And of course, it's not just the 18-year-olds because particularly we noticed a change in Australia after the bushfires where people's perception of climate change and related social issues just shifted. And so there's a far greater expectation really across the whole community now that people will invest responsibly. And so it's, it's had a dramatic change after we thought this was coming for ages, but it's really been a far more dramatic shift in recent time. That's interesting. Now, Brad, Advent is often an early stage investor. That's right, isn't it? And so is that pressure from the sort of institutional market in the enlisted companies pushing through into private companies that are looking to grow or maybe go public eventually? Yeah, so, so certainly all the interactions that we have, we, we have an institutional um, investor base and they're 
not only represented here in Australia but offshore as, as well, um, being able to demonstrate ESG credentials across the, the board with those interactions with the, with the investors is uh, something which is, you know, front of mind across the spectrum regardless of where, where those investors are, are located. I think just picking up on Rebecca's point about, um, you, know, you know, the change with respect to, to ESG, I, I think what we're seeing is this societal change and a structural shift where ESG is becoming more than just a set of criteria or policy, but a, a real set of beliefs and, and corporate beliefs. And I think that's a really important kind of consideration. You, you know, you're seeing that cascade down through members, uh, in investors and, and demands that they have on asset managers and fund managers and to be socially responsible with their investing. I think you're seeing, you know, that formulate obviously government policy as, as well in terms of the, you know, if I could say, democratic kind of societies, the will of the people, which is, you know, policy around um, sustainable infrastructure, be it energy policy, be it transport, you know, electric vehicles, be it uh, housing, affordable housing. So we're, we're seeing, seeing that as well. And then, you know, in the boardroom, we're seeing CEOs and senior leaders actually, um, you know, drive change and, and call out particular kind of beliefs and behaviours they expect within their organisations. And I think of, of recent times, which we're uh, a better society for it is, is diversity and, and inclusion as, as well. So we're seeing, you know, ESG as, you know, maybe historically, as I said previously, a, a negative set or screening kind of criteria to a set of behaviours, parameters, which are, are corporate beliefs. And, and I think that's the, the evolution that we're seeing at the moment around ASG. So um, this is obviously a global thing, but is Australia, it would, be, would be regarded in the mainstream or an outlier? John, I'd say we're definitely in the mainstream because we had bushfires as one of our catalysts, but there have been equivalent, whether it be extreme weather events around the world or just with this increased social consciousness and perhaps uh, the fact that social media has become a, a platform for distributing that sort of thinking more broadly, we're noticing it everywhere and deal activity driven by it, the fact that that is up that is a global phenomenon as well. Okay. And Brad, um, are companies or investees that focus on ESG more valuable or less risky? I mean, is that a factor and is there data that, that supports that? Yeah, so there was a, a report last year came out of Canada, uh, EY report, which uh, looked at the inflows into ESG-aligned um, kind of funds versus those that are you know, un unaligned. Um and those ESG funds were able to capture four times the the inflows um, relative to, to those that weren't. So I th look, I think that the money is following, um, you know, ESG responsible investing uh, focused kind of investors and asset managers. So I, I think, you know, what does that mean? It means that asset managers that have that product will attract additional capital and those businesses that um, are demonstrating ESG credentials will also be uh, attracting that capital and making them more valuable. So I think you can save through just looking at uh, that study, looking at the, where the money is going is that, yes, uh, if you can demonstrate um, sustainability, if you can demonstrate certain um, aspects of uh, leadership around ESG, 
that does help with respect to, to value and how businesses, investors perceive your particular uh, business. Well, there's been a bit of uh, media and uh, other comment about uh, the role of proxy advisors and their legislative proposals. Do, do, do proxy advisors have a, have a role in this, this sort of ESG space? Look, I think they're particularly interested in the G aspect of it. Uh, I'd say they're just part of a broad base of different groups that really are reflecting in this respect broader society at the moment in terms of influencing investor behaviour. So, yes, they're interested, but we're no longer just in the territory of maybe proxy advisors and shareholder activists who are interested in this. It's a far broader phenomenon now. And so, as Brad said, if you're on the board of a listed company, you're certainly thinking about what the proxy advisors will think about you, but you're also thinking, what will my customers think? What will broader society think as well as what will my shareholders think? This is the BLS Report and I'm Pamela Hanrahan and we're listening to Rebecca Maslin-Stanage from HSF and Brad Lynch from Advent on ESG. Brad, Rebecca, can you give us some real-life examples of where ESG factors have affected a live deal recently? Rebecca first. Sure. So I guess first, Pamela, they're driving a lot of the deals you see in the market. So any number of mining companies, for example, around the world, you'll see trying to sell or demerge their coal assets. That's those companies trying to separate different assets with different ESG profiles that will appeal to different types of investor rather than having the mining more conglomerate type style company have its share price affected by lack of demand from those investors who don't want exposure to coal. And we've seen a number of deals that don't come to light at the moment because there are complex ESG factors that aren't acceptable from a bidder's perspective. And Brad's pointed out from an investor perspective, if you can deal with those, say put a new face on a company that might have seen, had a tainted reputation in the past for ESG factors, that can add value. We're still seeing some deals, however, that don't see the light of day because there are issues that are just seen as reputational downside and we have certainly seen bidders walk away from assets on the basis of ESG concerns. On the sort of social side, are there particular sectors that you think are going to end up being pure play? I'm thinking maybe gambling or alcohol. So I suppose already you you see some push for that in companies that perhaps got alcohol and non-alcoholic beverages and investor activity not just staying away from those companies but potentially trying to influence them in what they do, which will drive deals where they separate out perhaps the alcohol from the non-alcoholic beverages. We definitely see a push for those sorts of deals. Yeah, thank you. Brad, what are you seeing? Yeah, so Pamela, as you mentioned before, um, you know, typically we're working with businesses that uh, are mid-size uh, corporates, uh, often as the first institutional investor. Um, so, 
perhaps some of these businesses are early in their ESG kind of journey relative to, to larger organisations. I think for us, some of the things that we've committed to as, as a group um, and certainly committed to our investors is, is to really drive um, some ESG improvement with, with some of the businesses that we're partnered uh, partnering with. So the areas that we've focused on, I think it's really important to be kind of targeted and where do we think we can have the, the, the greatest impact with some of these businesses as well. So we're focusing on, on kind of three key areas within our investees. So uh, diversity inclusion is one particular area. So, you know, generally we're, we're focused on 40-40-20 kind of ratios and, and really promoting that at, at senior leadership kind of levels within our investees. A sustainable uh, supply chain, so in particular understanding kind of um, supply chains in, in more detail and obviously compliance with modern uh, slavery as well. That, that's a key focus. And more broadly, just being more conscious of uh, our, our carbon footprint within our investees. As a firm at Advent, we've been carbon neutral for, for two years now, which um, we're, we're committed to continuing, which I which I think is great. And, you know, even for us, the journey to get to that point is just understanding kind of our footprint to begin with and, and going through that educational process to be able to capture the data and then make some, some real decisions about how we get to that neutral position, which we've been able to do, as I said, for the last two years. Um, with all this, you know, one of the questions we often get uh, asked by our investors is, okay, how are you actually putting some teeth around this? You know, how is it cutting through? And with all our CEOs across our investee uh, group, um, within their incentives and in particular short-term incentive, there will be uh, a number of ESG-related metrics. And so this is linking the remuneration and the incentives of, of our senior leaders, in particular our CEOs, with tangible improvement and uh, intangible and uh, tangible progress measured against some ESG kind of metrics. And, and that's how we're bringing to life um, kind of, you know, ESG and, and being a, a socially responsible uh, kind of investor. I'm just going to go back, Brad, to a couple of things you mentioned there. So on the governance side, diversity and inclusion 40-40-20, that's aiming for 40% men, 40% women, and then the other 20% can go either way. Is that right? Correct. That That's correct. Yeah, good. And and you also mentioned supply chain. This is um, something that I think all companies who are subject to the modern slavery reporting have really focused on. I know um, I'm on a board where we've spent quite a bit of time thinking about our supply chain. Listeners might be interested to know that there was a case recently in the UK where a company was held to owe a duty of care to people who were working in the shipbreaking industry in Bangladesh. They had on-sold a ship through various ship brokers to go off to Bangladesh to be broken up and a worker was injured because the working conditions there are very unsafe. And the uh, UK company that was at the beginning of that process, so the original owner of the ship, uh, was held to owe a duty of care to the workers in Bangladesh, despite them being separated by many different um, corporate entities in that supply chain. So I think that's something that people are really focusing on at the moment. And Pamela, just uh, can I ask a question of you? I think um, this is a, an allied topic about uh, the duty of investment and particularly super trustees to take into account 
um, presumably, or climate factors in particular, but ESG factors. You, you were an expert witness in a, in a case um, uh, recently. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, John, I was. I was um, expert witness in a case called McVeigh against REST, where a member of a superannuation fund had brought proceedings against its superannuation trustee, uh, arguing that they ought to have paid more attention to the climate change risk in their portfolio and uh, instructed their asset managers uh, slightly differently from they had. That that case was settled in November of last year with REST releasing a statement acknowledging the various climate risks that were in its portfolio and its responsibility to take active steps to manage that risk. So it was an interesting case. Funnily enough, when we talk about climate risk, which I know is just a subset of what we're talking about today. We're looking at physical risk, we're looking at transition risk, but we are also increasingly looking at litigation risk. And Australia is a bit of a hotspot for climate litigation. We recently had the case that the school children brought against the Environment Minister for approving the coal mine development up in Queensland, where the federal court found that the minister did owe young people a duty to exercise her approval powers in a way that didn't imperil their futures. So it's mitigation risk is a live issue around the climate side in particular. And also, as I've said, around the supply chain, as I think that UK case demonstrates. I can just sort of take that one, one step further. Um, so the litigation risk uh, around climate change, around disclosure as well for uh, for listed companies. Rebecca, do you want to make a comment about that? Yes, this is definitely an emerging theme, John, and one thing we're always conscious of with clients is not to have them overpromise in the ESG reporting because it's really easy to slip into this uh, space of trying to make it all sound as good as possible. And in the US, we're already seeing litigation where uh, investors or activists are actually litigating over those claims where they can't perhaps be sustained. There might not have been a reasonable basis for what was said. So you do need to strike this caution of putting your best foot forward, but not overstating how socially responsible you are as a company, but really giving a balanced picture. Because as Pamela said, given how litigious Australia is, we fully expect that there will be an increase in that type of litigation here as well. There's, I guess, another form of um, of activism, if I can call it that, uh, well, shareholder activism and uh, certainly from environmental and, and uh, if I can say, activist groups uh, putting things on the agenda for many listed companies. That seems to be a, a fairly standard thing now. Every listed company that, that may have some um, uh, some ESG issues should expect uh, uh, that, that, that to, to pop up at their AGM. That's right, John. And when you think about it, how that tends to be dealt with now is quite different from how it would have been in the past. We're seeing a more open and empathetic approach to listening to the concerns raised by people who are putting forward those proposals. And that's really reflecting, again, the point that Brad made about boards looking differently at this stage, knowing that the concerns around being a good ESG citizen are felt quite broadly across the community and the investor base and the customer base, not uh, just with a, what might have in the past been perceived as an activist fringe. Brad, do you want to comment on that? 
Look, I suppose my experience at a board level, um, you know, both private companies and, and listed companies is that, um, you know, the, the boardroom conversations are very much around um, how ESG can, can help uh, competitive advantage and, and create opportunity. And I think that's a real uh, shift in terms of the mindset, which is a real positive shift as, as well. So I think we continue to look at this uh, as uh, yeah as, as an opportunity, and um, I think those organisations that are embracing kind of dialogue on where they're at on their ESG journey and being real about that, and, and recognising that this that there will be a, a process to, to get to best practice, but actually making those steps and and going on that journey is a worthy pursuit. Well, look, uh, today is the 11th of June, um, and last Saturday's weekend, Australian Asset Commissioner Cathy Armour was reported as warning against greenwashing, companies making exaggerated claims about carbon neutrality or net zero without a reasonable basis. Is, is some of the focus of um, ESG, particularly in the public company space, this kind of thing, just trying to present a, a, a positive spin on events rather than substance? Or And how can we tell the difference between the so-called greenwashing in reality? Uh, good question, John. I mean, I feel it's genuinely and broadly felt by most of the corporates that we deal with. You know, they have realised, we've all realised following bushfires and other events that we need to be focused on these issues. And so it doesn't feel to me like there's extensive greenwashing in the market. There will no doubt be the odd company who perhaps gives a picture trying to tick the box without walking the talk. But, uh, and like I said, there'll possibly be litigation consequences in relation to that. But uh, I'm glad to say, I think most of what we are seeing is very genuine. And I think on that, John, as well, is that the market is becoming more educated around ESG so they can actually call out, um, you know, where, where there is greenwashing or whether it's, um, you know, kind of, you know, tick the box kind of compliance exercise. Um, you know, for, for um, there, there are uh, internationally accepted kind of standards now, I think of uh, SASB, which is what Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which are actually providing real metrics are around this and you know we derive some of our metrics for our uh, investee companies from those those standards as well so i think there is a, a set of criteria which um, is being able to it can be used here to really benchmark uh, substance uh, over form um, and increasingly uh, diligence, uh, di diligent directors uh, and those at senior leadership levels are educating themselves uh, in this area to ensure that they're actually providing substance uh, uh, to their ESG kind of initiatives. That's a really important point. So 10 years ago, we had a range of different metrics and reporting frameworks around particularly environmental matters, but social and governance measures as well. And I think we're starting to see those mature and coalesce. Now we have the TCFD, we have reporting against sustainable development goals, we have modern slavery reporting. So it's part of the sort of natural development of this side of the market that those reporting frameworks are starting to mature. And, and I think that's really important step in moving things forward. I know as lawyers we always think that it's 
the law that enables commerce and accountants always think that it's accounting that enables commerce, but I think reporting is a really important part of this. If you can measure something and you can measure change in that thing, then it's much easier to link it, as Brad said, to people's remuneration or uh, to um, the performance factors that influence the company. And I think that's been a really significant development over recent times. We're not all the way there yet. I think there's still a bit of shaking out about the reporting frameworks, but it's definitely the pace of change is increasing. And they used to say what 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 measures matters or what what is measured is managed. Can I just just a slight change of, of direction? Um, debt finance. Are, are debt financiers taking into account ESG factors in making decisions about making credit available, and is that having an impact? Look, I think absolutely uh, they are. There is the emergence of sustainable uh, lending as well, where we're seeing corporates be, be rewarded for progress against ESG standards whereby the rate of charges or interest actually steps down when you're demonstrating progress against a certain number of ESG criteria. So there are actual financial products out there that are linking interest and charges to ESG outcomes, which which I think is fantastic. So absolutely, there is further screening, I think, um, from financiers regarding kind of the, the counterparties that they lend to. But more importantly, I think there's a development of um, financial products out there, which uh, from a lending perspective, which are incorporating directly ESG outcomes with respect to that relationship between uh, lender and borrower. Okay, Brad, any final comment or any takeaway points for our listeners? Look, I think the the way that I view ESG has been something that's always been the case, which is the manner in which you achieve an outcome is actually more important than the outcome itself. So the pursuit of profits, for example, well, how you go about you know making money is more important than the actual outcome itself. So you know our philosophy is good ESG is good business. It's great for society. It's great for the planet. Uh, and, and I think um, the, the shift that we're seeing uh, across the board in the investment community is, is a real positive one around ESG. And Rebecca, as a Global Chair and Senior Partner, you get the final word. I would just say, as a deal lawyer for many years, uh, we've found this shift at the end of the day really quite positive and enjoyable. You know, the move from thinking more just about dollars and cents to also factoring in a very genuine way broader issues about looking after the planet and sustainability, it actually has changed the way that a lot of our clients look at things, but in a way that is, as Brad said, very positive for us and for the planet. So I think it's only net-net a positive for the whole deal environment that there has been this shift. We've been fortunate to have with us Brad Lynch from Advent Partners and Rebecca Maslin-Stanage from Herbert Smith Freehills. Brad and Rebecca, thank you again for your time. Thanks, John. And thanks to my co-presenter, Pamela Hanrahan from University of New South Wales. Thanks, John. I'm John Keyes, and this has been the BLS Report in honour of the late Professor Bob Baxt AO, produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in collaboration with 2SER.